So we are working through Gospel of John. We are, uh, we are calling this series, The Lion Roars, Revelation 5.5 5 says that Jesus is the Lion of Judah. And you know, the book of Revelation can, can be kind of, it, it seems kind of intimidating and a tough nut to crack, but uh, it, it's the only book that promises a blessing to those who read it, to those who study it. And when you, and it can be understood, it is a book that gives great hope when you're facing great opposition and when there is great turmoil and there is great trouble, and that would fit what's going on in, in our lives and in our world and in our culture. God has a plan for the ages, and there will be an end to history. There will be a reckoning day, you, you, don't, you don't need to fear climate change. Because if you read Revelation, climate change is, is not the situation. There's gonna be some changes to the earth, but there is gonna be a great destruction that God brings about, the world will be destroyed by fire, and then There'll be a new heaven, there'll be a new earth, and there'll be a new Jerusalem. God's got this whole thing. He's got it. Jesus has got it. And as we go through John, we're finding out that in the Gospel of John, and in all the Bible, in all the Gospels, there are acts and there are facts and we've seen this already in the Gospel of John. Tonight, we're gonna to look at five facts. And these five facts are true. You can bank your life on these facts. And these five facts are the key to life and they are the key to eternal life. We're gonna be in John 3. We'll touch on John 2 as we get into this, and we'll even touch on John 1, and I'm gonna to touch on John 1 right now with fact number one. Here's fact number one. Jesus is God. That's in John 1.1, that's in John 1.14. It's all the way through in the Gospel of John. <clears throat> in the beginning was the Word, John 1, 1, and the word was with God. The word is logos. It is, it, it's referring to Jesus, as we'll see. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So that means he was there before creation. He's always been, he has always been. Jesus is not a created creature, he's God. Uh, the aseity of God, A-S-E-I-T-Y, God's self-existence, he's always been. Well, where did God come from? He's always been. 
Yeah, I know, but where did he come from? We do not have the bandwidth to understand this, but it is declared to us by God's own revelation. So 1-2, he was in the beginning with God. That's why we have Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then as you go through the creation account, and God said, let us make man in our own image. Us. I thought God created the heavens and the earth. He did. But scripture interprets scripture. We learn in scripture that we have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. You got a big circle in the middle, you got a hub, and you could write God. And then up on the top of the circle, you could put uh, the Father, and then over here you could put the Son, and over here you could put the Holy Spirit. And then you got a spoke that would go from the Father down to God. The Father is God. The Son, here's another spoke, is God. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is God. Now go back to the wheel. The Father, and then here's the Son, the Father, you write in, is not the Son. The Son, and then you write, is not the Spirit. Uh, the Spirit is not the Father. So this is who our God is. And then in John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. This is what Jesus did. He became flesh. He became the God-man and dwelt among us. John and the other apostles lived with him for three years. And they all say he was without sin. You couldn't be around me 30 seconds. Or anyone could be around you. We're just, we're just sinners. Even after we come to know the Lord. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory. Glory is as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus. Jesus is God. That's fact one. Fact two. And this is where we go to 2.23. And Jesus had just cleared out the temple. And it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. Many. He, he was doing miracles. He had just done the first miracle earlier in John 2, the wedding uh, in Cana, he had turned the water into wine. But many were believing in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. Watch this. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So here's fact two. Only God can read the hearts of men. Only God can read the hearts of men. We can read the body language of someone, but you can't read their heart. Only God can read the hearts of men. So contextually, all these people, they saw these miracles and, oh yeah, I, I, want, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be in with that. But as you read through John, what happens is as, as they're following Jesus and he continues to do miracles, but he's continuing to teach. And at certain points as he teaches, they start dropping off because they don't like what he's saying. This is why he didn't entrust himself to men because many believed in his name, but he knew their hearts and he knew they really hadn't believed. One of the apostles was a devil, Judas. 
He knew the heart of Judas. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. We're able to read external body language, and you can, you know, read books on this. It's kind of fascinating. You know, seven ways to tell if someone's lying, all that kind of stuff. He knows hearts. If you flip over to Hebrews 4, familiar passage here. For the word of God, verse 12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able, watch this, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God is able to read human hearts. The word of God is able to pierce human hearts. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. One of the old Puritan pastors, Thomas Watson, said, God is all I. He's all I. He sees it all. There is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare, the things in the heart that we conceal. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So fact one, Jesus is God. Fact number two, only God can read the hearts of men. And in John 2, 23 to 25, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he could read the hearts of men because he's God. Fact number three, only God can change the hearts of men. So now we're into John 3. And we're into some verses that are some of the most famous verses in the world. 3.1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He was right in his statement, but he was also a little off. God has, throughout Scripture, throughout biblical history, uh, he gives gifts to the church. He gives men to the church to whom he's given the gift of teaching. And in the Old Testament... Moses was a teacher from God. Um, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the prophets were teachers from God. And, and yes, in one sense, you've come from God as a teacher. But here's what's going on with Jesus. Never before, ever, had God come down to teach. That's why Jesus said on another occasion, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Because he was God in flesh. God is spirit. No one has seen God at any time. But Jesus put skin on him. He was the God-man. He encounters this guy, Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's part of the elite of Israel. He was a leader. He was on the Jewish council that pretty much um, was, was the body 
was the authority. Uh, they were under Rome, and it drove them nuts. And, and, and by the way, going back that Jesus did not entrust himself to men, he knew that some of those Jews who believed in him thought they were thinking he must be the Messiah that the Old Testament spoke of. But see, they had a twisted view of the Messiah, not one from Scripture, but one they kind of conjured up. They hated being under Rome. They hated being oppressed by Rome. And they were looking for a political Messiah to free them from Rome. And was that everybody? No, but Jesus knew the hearts, and he knew the ones who thought he was a political Messiah. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. They wanted him to build a political kingdom. He was building the kingdom of God. You got to make sure you're all about building the kingdom of God. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you can build the kingdom of God right where you are in your little condo or in your RV or in your backyard, having a barbecue, sitting at a picnic table in your house, and you're building the kingdom of God. You don't like the way the nation's going? Start your own nation. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Doesn't mean you're not a citizen. Uh, we're Americans. Doesn't mean we're not citizens. We are citizens. But we are aliens here, Scripture tells us, and we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Christ. We belong to him. We're in the church. In your home, Jesus is the king, and the Bible is the constitution. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Nicodemus was a leader. You got all these people that are hurting, that are struggling, that uh, are disappointed with life, they, they, they're blind, they're lame, they're paralyzed. Just scroll through. And when Jesus sees them, they call out. Some, they don't even call out. He just speaks a word and he heals them because he has compassion on them. And at certain times, specific times, and we'll see this in John, Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. Well, the Pharisees were Sabbath freaks. In fact, they took what the teaching that that was the day they were to set aside. And Exodus 31, it was actually the sign of the covenant God made with Moses. Down through the years, the religious leaders of Israel took the law, the Old Testament law, and then these different scholars would give their interpretation. It wasn't necessarily correct. And... And each generation, there would be more scholars who would comment. And so they had these big commentaries on the Old Testament law. And they, they kept adding to it. And they kept it, it. You know, the tax code used to be very simple when they instituted the income tax in America. There was a time in America there you didn't pay income tax. Was it 1913? All right. And now there's a simplified tax form. I don't know if you've seen this. I just read about it this morning. And a lot of people have wanted one because it's so massive. I mean, my gosh, you can break the law and even know you're breaking the law. Uh, it, it's just a new form. It, it, it says, basically, how much did you earn? Um, 
Secondly, it says, send it all in. <laughs> and then you sign and date it. I found that to be humorous, personally. <laughs> kind of sad, actually. But, uh, you know, the tax code just keeps getting bigger and 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 bigger. That's kind of how it was with these guys. They were religious bureaucrats. And Jesus is always indicting these guys. And so Jesus would be going through his, you know, the day, healing people, all this. And every once in a while, he'd heal specifically on the Sabbath, like the man with the withered hand. And the Pharisees are there, they're watching him to see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath, because in their book, that's a work. He just violated the Sabbath. And so what is, Jesus is looking at these guys, and he, you know, he's just tweaking them. He's just tweaking them. And they're watching him like a hawk. And he says to the man with the, with the withered hand, stretch forth thy hand. Well, he just told the guy to do something impossible. He can't stretch, he, he's nerve damage. He can't stretch forth his hand. But stretch forth thy hand, all of a sudden, <laughs> were they praising God? Nah, they're ticked off because he violated page 1263, section two, article one, footnote 18 and they're castigating him. So he had compassion, but as he was having compassion on those who were hurting and those in need, he was constantly confronting the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of Israel, and he never backed off. Some of them actually got to the point where they said, the miracles you, you do, you do them by the power of Satan. So you get this ongoing battle going on in the Gospels. It's, I don't care which Gospel you read. You're going to see this battle going on with the Pharisees. Now, Nicodemus shows up, and he is not antagonistic. He seems to have a degree of openness. He is... Um, He's kind of fascinated, and he's very curious about the Lord Jesus. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. By the way, as we read this dialogue, Jesus interacts with him, and then that's it, and it's, it's over, and we don't know, we don't see that Nicodemus calls out to Jesus, but Jesus gave him a lot to think about, and really stunned him, in fact, amazed him, as we'll see in a minute. Jesus knew the heart of Nicodemus, and he knew that Nicodemus, as a high-ranking Jew, was absolutely confident he was going to heaven. Never entered his mind that he wouldn't go to heaven. Because he was the, the elite, he'd been to the right schools, he had the right diplomas, he had the right connections. I mean, he was an influencer. Never crossed his mind he wouldn't be in heaven. If anyone would be in heaven, it would be him. It was a system of works. It was a system of works. You know, I'm meticulous. Ah, then basically I earned my way to heaven. God could not say no to me. Jesus knew this was in his heart. 
that not unlike the Apostle Paul, who used to be a Pharisee. In Philippians, Paul, now an apostle, writing scripture, planning churches, is um, looking back over his life and describes his former life, actually in Philippians 3, beginning with verse 2, he says, beware of the dogs. Well, that's not real nice. This idea that Christian men are just to be nice. And no, um, no straight talk, no, um, no confrontation. There are times when you confront, and there are times you talk straight, and there are times you tell the truth. Beware of the dogs, and he didn't mean poodles. He meant the ravenous dogs that ran in packs that you had to be careful of. That's what he meant. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Those would be the Judaizers who added to the gospel. They added to the gospel. That would be any religious hypocrisy. That would be any deviation from the gospel, including you can be saved by works. So he's making, he's speaking of the Judaizers. And then he goes on in verse 3 and says, For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, but no confidence in the flesh. Whether, you know, whether you're circumcised, the circumcision was a mark that, you know, Jews were to be circumcised on the eighth day. But now, what's happened is God has opened it up to Jew and Gentile. And some were saying, oh, you got to be, if you're a Gentile, you got to be circumcised to be in the kingdom of God. No. We're the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. Now watch him go over his past. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far, I far more. And now Paul's, what he's going to do is, he's going to pull out his trophies. He's going to pull out his yearbooks. He's going to pull out his, uh, his YouTube videos. He's going to pull out all the stuff he used to do because he was right on top like Nicodemus was. If anyone has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless, I was meticulous. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. Actually, the word would be dung. So that I may gain Christ. All that stuff I used to count on, that I relied on, that would get me into heaven, it's stuff you don't want to step in. That's what he gloried in, and now he says it's absolute excrement. That's where, that's where Nicodemus was when he's talking with Jesus here. So, as we go on in John 3, 
we're going to see Jesus do something three times. As he's talking to Nicodemus, three times he's going to say to him, truly, truly, I say to you. The old King James, I think, has it. Verily, verily, I say to you. Just, just a tip that when Jesus says, verily, verily, I say to you, or he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's about to give you a nugget of truth that you don't want to miss. And he didn't want Nicodemus to miss this. He doesn't want us to miss it. Jesus answered and said to him, he's just said, you're a teacher that comes from God. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What? Where did that come from? He's absolutely blowing this guy's categories. Because he's, his whole category is righteousness before God. I'll take works for 200. Works for 500. You know, it's just works. I want as many works as I can get. And what Jesus does is he just obliterates that, and the guy doesn't even, he doesn't know what to do. In fact, he, he's just trying to assimilate it. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again. Born again, what is that? He cannot enter the kingdom of God. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? I mean, he didn't get it at all. So here comes another truly, truly. Verse 5, Jesus answered and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going, and so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. We know where the wind comes from. Oh, now we do, because we're advanced. I mean, they'll show you where the wind comes from. You can see it on the weather radar. You can pull it up on your phone. It comes from the jet stream. But how many times... If those weathermen worked on commission, <laughs> they'd be bankrupt. Truly, truly, let's go back to verse 5. I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And, you know, there's debate as to what this means. Go to Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. The prophet Ezekiel is talking about from his perspective, something that was going to happen in the future. And it is uh, happening with the ministry of Jesus when he became the God-man. Verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Now, they had this whole sacrificial system the legitimate sacrificial system that had been put in place. So they are always sacrificing animals. But then, in the future, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Now watch this. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit 
within you, and I will remove the heart of I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Th this is the new covenant. This is being born again. It, it, what Ezekiel's saying is, in the future, there's going to be there's going to be a change. You're not going to have to do sacrifice all these animals. Because as John the Baptist said earlier in John, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. How come we don't do animal sacrifices? Because the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world, went to the cross. And you read the book of Hebrews, and it's complete. Jesus is watching this guy, and he knows his heart. And Jesus says, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? That is correct. Because, as 1 Corinthians 2 said, says, the things of God are spiritually understood. Satan is blind to the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the truth of the gospel. We uh, were born physically alive, but spiritually dead. This is why we must be born again. Um, you've got this concept all the way through the New Testament. I'll just give you a couple other verses. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. God, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. That's being born again. Colossians 2.13, you who were dead, God made alive together with him. 1 Peter 1.3, Peter says, he has caused us to be born again. 1 John 2.29, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Oh, and by the way, 1 John 3, 9 says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. You say, well, wait a minute. Am I not a Christian because I sin? There's a difference between sinning. We, we still have sin nature. We, we have a new nature. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. But we're still carrying around a portion of sin nature, and we are to kill sin. Here's the deal. You don't want to practice it. You used to practice it before you knew Christ. And to really get good at sin, we're, we're sinners. But if someone says they're a Christian and they're still practicing diligently sin, they're not a Christian. I mean, I mean talking about, you know, some of the great pianists, some of the great musicians will practice three, four, five hours a day. And there are individuals who practice diligently sin and call themselves Christians. They work at it. They're always coming up with new ways to do it better. They're always coming up with new ways to be more effective. They're always coming up with new ways to be more deceptive and to lie. And it doesn't bother them. Because the more you do that, the harder your heart gets. 1 John 3, 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. 
what happens, you're a Christian, if when you sin, you're immediately the Holy Spirit will just flick that nerve of conscience. And you know. You, you, you know. So what do you do? Well, we're told what to do. If we confess our sin, First John 1, 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You confess your sin, and then you keep walking with Christ. You see? There's a difference between sinning and practicing sin. In John 3, Jesus is blowing this guy out of the water. Verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? And no, he didn't understand them because he had not been born again. He, you, you can't get it unless you're born again. Only God can change the hearts of men. Being born again is a work of God. Many times there's, there's a gestation period before someone calls on the name of Jesus for forgiveness of sins. They hear the gospel and comprehend. There's usually a process. Uh, maybe in your own life you look back and when you first heard the gospel, you, were, you had no interest in it. You thought it was nuts. You thought it was crazy. And then something happened in your life. You know, some months went by and you were hurting and whatever. And someone shares with you and you're still not, you're, you're not there. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the great Christian apologist and writer and scholar, was in World War I and he came out of World War I. With everything he saw, he was a flat-out atheist. Um, how can there be a God with this destruction? He goes back to Oxford and graduates and becomes a member of the faculty. He had some friends who were Christians, and they would meet once a week, sometimes more than once a week, and they were all writers. There was this one guy, J.R.R. Tolkien, and there were some other guys, and they were all world-class, and they would critique one of the writings, and, you know, have you ever thought about this? Have you, ever, you know, And they were just friends. So some of these guys are believers, and as the years go by, they're talking to Lewis about Christ. He wants nothing to do with it. Lewis tells the story. On one particular day, he lived in a home with his brother Jack. You can, the home's still there. You can drive by it. The pub is still there. You can go in it. His brother Jack had a, old motorcycle with a sidecar. They were going to go into town. So Jack gets it going. He gets in the sidecar. And Lewis said, all I can tell you is, after years of interaction, when I got on the sidecar, I wasn't a Christian. When I got out of the sidecar, 10 minutes later, I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> he was born again in a sidecar. There was a gestation period, and then the Spirit of God, he was born again. What's your story? And, and some of you say, well, I'm, I'm not there yet. Well, that's fine. Uh, keep asking your questions. But just know this, you, you feel this pull, and it's the Lord Jesus who's He's reeling you in. And you're going to want to come. And you will come.
Because Jesus said, all that the Father has given me will come. Greatest, we all, and then Lewis also said, I came into the kingdom of God kicking and screaming. They want to come. Because <laughs> we think we know best. Here's fact number four. Only Jesus was able to pay the price for sin. Look at verse 11, if you would. Another truly, 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 I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify, testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? He was using metaphors from physical life. I told you earthly things, but you're not believing. How can I tell you heavenly things? Then he says in verse 13, Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man, that's him, Jesus. I descended from heaven. Now, I want to focus in on something we mentioned last week. I, I mentioned that there's a lot of discussion going on right now about, there's a book that's been written called Gentle and Lowly. It's based on um, Matthew eleven twenty eight. And in Matthew eleven twenty eight, you can turn over there if you'd like. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the premise of the book by Dane Ortland is that the one outstanding characteristic of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he was gentle and lowly. And it should be the primary characteristic of our lives as Christian men. Let's take the words, I am gentle. And Ortland, who's a good scholar, Greek scholar, says the, word, the Greek word translated gentle here occurs just three other times in the New Testament. In Matthew 5, 5, where it says that the meek will inherit the earth. Same word as gentle here. In the prophecy of Matthew 21, 5, quoting Zechariah 9, 9, that Jesus is the king who is coming to you humble. Humble. So that word can be translated gentle. It can be translated meek. It can be translated humble. Same word. Um, it is used of wives in 1 Peter 3 that they should have the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So that word can be translated meek, humble, gentle. And then the word lowly, this is interesting. He says, the meaning of the word lowly overlaps with that of gentle. Okay? I don't, I don't want to lose you here. Together, communicating a single reality about Jesus' heart. This word lowly is generally translated humble. So we're back to humility in the New Testament. Such as in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So really what's coming out here real strong is humility. Okay? But typically throughout the New Testament, this Greek word refers not to humility as a virtue, but 
humility in the sense of destitution or being thrust downward by life circumstances. Paul uses the word when he tells us, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, Romans 12, 16. Okay, so you, you kind of got that in your head a little bit? No. So he's accurate on his word studies here. So does that mean that, as he says in the book, at certain places, Jesus is not trigger happy, Jesus is not harsh, he's not reactionary, he's not easily exasperated? Well, wait a minute, he took on the Pharisees. Now with people who were hurting and wounded and at, at the bottom of the ladder, he had compassion, of course he did, he's God. R really, what this is talking about is John three thirteen. no one has ascended into heaven, but here's, here, watch this, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. You say, what's the, what's, what's the relationship? Well, he descended from heaven. Yeah, well, why did he descend from heaven? Philippians, Philippians 2. This is the idea behind gentle and lowly. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Christ is our model He's, Paul's writing to Christian people. And the leaders of the church would be men, the elders, and then, you know, you've got fathers. God has called, when, you're, when you read the New Testament, it's very clear. God's called men to lead the family, and God's called men to lead the church. What's being taught here is for men and women. But it's certainly for men. And Paul says this, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with which is humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest. He doesn't say, don't look out for your personal interest. He says, don't just look out for your personal interest. Just don't be a narcissist. Don't be just absorbed with yourself and doing your own thing and forget about your wife and what her needs are or ignore your kids because you're trying to clothe the corporate ladder and, you know, all this stuff, which is what we tend to do. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in you which was in Christ Jesus. Now watch this. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was equal with God. Of course he was. But he, New American Standard says, emptied himself. A better translation is, he laid aside his privileges. He had all these privileges as God. He's royalty. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He laid aside his privileges, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So Jesus is God. He's got all the privileges of being God. And he comes in the form of a bondservant. Jesus came to earth not because it was best for him, he came to earth because it was best for us. Being found in appearance as a man, he, watch it, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So as God's at work within me, what's he attempting to do? Make me more like Jesus. That means, as John the Baptist says earlier in John, he must increase, I must decrease. It's not all about me. You see? God has not given me a wife and kids to meet my needs. My job is to meet their needs. And it's exhausting. But that's what he's called us to do. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ, what? Love the church. How did Jesus love the church? Right here. He humbled himself. He became a servant. This gentle and lowly is a reference to what Jesus did when he came down and went to the cross and paid for our sins. The idea is not that he never confronted or that he was never bold or confrontational, because he was. You, you want to talk about the epitome of servanthood? It's what he did when he came down. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? It's staggering. It's amazing grace. By the way, back in Matthew 8, 20, another aspect of Jesus being lowly, and remember he said those Greek words have the idea of descending? Matthew 8, 20, Jesus said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has many compounds with walls and tennis courts and hot tubs to lay his head. That's not what he said. It's really an amazing statement. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You talk about lean lowly. You, you talk about identify with the hurting. That was Jesus. That's what's being talked about. Stop and think about this. If Jesus didn't humble himself to die for us, we would all be eternally damned. So that's pretty strong. Well, I didn't come up with it. Go back to John 3. It's what's up next. I mean, that's a very strong statement. You're not supposed to say things like that. Well, Jesus said it, and he's God, and he is the tr way, the truth, and the life. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, 13, 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so that's in Numbers 21, the people got sick, there were snake bites and all this, and so they made a brass serpent, put it up, and if you looked up, you'd be healed, all right? We'll look at that later. 
As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he was lifted up on a cross. He's talking about his substitutionary death for us. Now watch this. So that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. You don't have to be eternally damned. For God so loved the world, here we go, that he gave his only, one and only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Watch this. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment. That the light, capital L, Jesus, go back to John 1, he's called the light, has come into the world. The and men love the darkness rather than the light. We love our sin. We love our own agenda. We love our own goals and our own objectives. And we love doing it my way. Men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. You got to understand what's going around us, what is going around us, what we're watching in this nation, or evil is everywhere and it's increasing. It is ultimately rebellion against Christ. That's what it is. Utterly. That's why in Psalm 2, the leaders of the nations are warned. You better kiss the son and give him homage. Lest you perish in the way. Because God can read your hearts. And you don't have to be judged. You can be forgiven. This is the gospel. This is the good news. 19, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. They will be exposed. You can be sure your sin will find you out. But he who, watch this, practices the truth. Doesn't say he who has the truth down perfectly because we don't. But like you used to practice sin, now you're trying to practice the truth. Oh, Lord, help me. And you know, you're, you're coming home from work. It's been an unbelievable day. You're worn out. You're going to have your wife's there. You got the kids there. You got 94 grandkids. I, I mean, and they're all going to want a piece of you. And, and you know what's coming as soon as you walk in that door. And, and what do you do? The godly man will breathe a prayer and say, Lord Jesus, help me when I walk in, because I know me. And I'm trying, Lord, help, help me here. Help, help me to listen. I'm out of gas. Would you help me, please? Apart from you, I can do nothing. He who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. There's a last fact, and I, all I have to do is mention it. I've already said it, actually. Fact five. Jesus was compassionate to the needy, and he was confrontational to the Pharisees who were doing evil. So you see both. There is a classic book written by Oswald Sanders, and I'll close with this. The book is called Spiritual Leadership. I've read it numerous times. I first read it probably in my early 20s. 
this chapter is called Qualities Essential to Leadership. Qualities Essential to Leadership. And one of the qualities he mentions is anger. It's kind of surprising. Listen to what he says. This sounds like a strange qualification for leadership. In another context, it could be quoted as a disqualifying factor. But was this quality not present in the life of the supreme leader, our Lord Jesus Christ? John 2, 15 to 17, we studied last week, where he, the first time he cleared the temple, Jesus looked on them with anger. Righteous wrath is no less noble than love, since both coexist in God. Each necessitates the other. It was Jesus' love for the man with the withered hand that aroused his anger against those who would deny that man healing. It was his love for his father and zeal for his glory that kindled his anger against the mercenary traitors who had turned his house of prayer for all nations into a cave of robbers. Great leaders, catch this, Great leaders who have turned the tide in days of national and spiritual declension, what we're in right now, have been men who could get angry at the injustices and abuses which dishonor God and enslave men. It was righteous anger against the heartless slave traders that caused William Wilberforce to move heaven and earth for the emancipation of slaves. God used that man to eradicate slavery in the British Empire. But such anger is open to abuse, and few can entertain it without allowing it to degenerate into sin. Paul argues the possibility of righteous anger in his exhortation where he says, be angry and sin not. Two minutes and we'll be done. Holy anger is free from selfishness. Anger which centers upon self is always sinful. To be sinless, it must be zeal for the rights of truth and purity with the glory of God as its objective. When we are angry with sin in our own lives, we will be most likely to experience righteous anger at the sin in others. But see, we look to ourselves first. There's a wrong kind of anger and there's a right kind. And when there is great evil and you've got a righteous anger, well, let's just forget about us. When Jesus encountered it, he was bold, he was confrontational, and he took it on. He's our model. Let's pray. Father, we're all in process, and we're all learning, and we're all growing. We, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came. We thank you that we have a record of some of what he did. We thank you that when he ascended through his Holy Spirit, he revealed more truth to his apostles, and it was captured in Scripture for us forever. We're in process, we fall short, but your grace and mercy is remarkable. We ask you to help us grow. Give us teachable hearts. Thank you that you forgive all of our missteps, all of our sins, all the times we missed the mark. 
Thank you for your amazing love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.